it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks. Well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight is episode 169. Uh, tonight, Andrew and I are going to answer some listener questions. We got four great ones that we're going to answer for you guys. So we'll go ahead and start. So I have the first question here. Hey, Andrew, uh, do you have a pod episode that talks about stock splits? Or have you guys talked about the upcoming Apple and Tesla splits on recent pods I may have missed? Thanks, Joe. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? So we haven't talked about the splits. By the time this goes live, the splits will have already happened for Apple and Tesla. It's a a good time to talk about them. Basically, what a stock split is, is when... So if you go back to the basics of what a stock is and, and what the stock market's like and what that represents with businesses, you could literally go back to the basics with our series we did on episode 42, I believe. And we did four episodes, all covering that very, very in-depth. So I highly recommend that for beginners who are just tuning in. But essentially, ownership of a business is split into all of these different shares. And so you know, you have a certain number of shares, and then you have the price per share. And that price per share is what you're going to see on CNBC or Yahoo Finance. And you know, in the case of... You know, let's say Apple today, they're at 120 something a share, something, something like that, right? So you have that number, you have the number of shares. So when a company does a stock split, what they're doing is they're basically going to split the, they're splitting the price. And so what that's doing is it's doubling the shares. So, you know, you can do different types of stock splits. Tesla's was kind of interesting because they did a weird ratio. But um, for something like Apple, you could basically, if you owned one one share, they're going to split that into two shares. And so you're going to own two shares now. And then the price of Apple went from 200 something to a hundred and something. And what that does as a shareholder, if you're a current shareholder, that doesn't really change anything. And if you look at it on a big picture, you're not really changing the ownership percentages any 
any differently. And so one description I saw recently kind of summed it up perfectly where if you have a pie and you split it into tiny slivers, that that doesn't change what part of the pie you're getting um, if you're taking like half the pie, you know? So if you, if you split half the pie into like four slices or if you've split half the pie into 16, 20, 25 different slices, but if you still are going to get half the pie, you're still getting half the pie. So that's basically how it works with these stock splits. And it, it, it makes for interesting kind of news event and it can bring attention to the stock. So sometimes that can push the stock and uh, bring some momentum. We saw that happen with Apple and Tesla. And then we saw that momentum also pop and then move the other way. So, you know, there there's no fundamental difference with what's going on with the business when you talk about a stock split. And so over the very long term, it, it really doesn't make a difference to investors. No, it really doesn't. And I I wonder... What do you think is the reason for companies doing that? Do you think they're doing it to make it the shares air quote more affordable to small retail investors like us? Or is it more just a marketing ploy to get people to talk more about it? I know that Apple and Tesla, both of their share prices bid up quite a bit before the splits. I believe Tesla was like 80 to 100% from the time they announced to the time that they actually did the stock splits. And I think Apple was probably in the same realm. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know if Apple went that extreme, but it was pretty ridiculous. It, you know, it, there could be different reasons. I'm sure there's plenty of CEOs who would jump at that idea. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's something to do with you know how the dividend payment gets paid. Maybe it's easier to pay a dividend in a certain way or or track these things. I, I it, it's it's an interesting part of Wall Street and the stock exchange because we all kind of know that there's no fundamental value unlock, and I think I saw uh, uh, Professor Damodoran talk about this. We all know that there's no no change um, in the business, and so out of all these transactions we see on Wall Street, like an IPO or a merger and an acquisition or a spinoff, you know, these are all value creating events for either shareholders or companies. A stock split doesn't categorize into any of that, but it creates a bunch of buzz, and I'm sure it creates a lot of paperwork. I don't know; it's interesting. Yeah, it is. I would agree. So. You know, good question. I hope that answered it. And um, I'm sure in six months, it will spring up again with some other new company. So we'll move on to the next question. This says, Sean from Ireland writes in, he says, Dear Andrew and Dave, thank you both for the great work you are doing in educating your listeners on investing. I have two, he has two questions. We're going to answer one of them. Uh, he says, I've recently read about how a company's share price will open down by the dividend amount on the ex-dividend date. Do you think this has lasting effects on a company's overall share price performance, particularly, say, a higher yielding stock? So, for example, an 8% yielding $100 stock paying $2 quarterly dividend would take an $8 hit over the course of a year. Dave, um, does that question make sense? And what is the answer? 
the yes, the question makes sense, and it does. Uh, there is. I've seen. Uh, if I could formulate my thought, yes, I have read that there are times where the stock price will take a dip right before the ex-dividend date. Uh, a lot of times that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the performance of the company. It's more about what investors are trying to get into the share price before it goes ex-dividend so that they can take advantage of the dividend. And then in some cases, there's a, uh, an investment strategy that I read about where people will buy right before the ex-dividend date. And then once they receive the dividend, they'll sell the, the shares. Uh, I don't know why they would want to do that, but apparently they think that that's a great way to generate uh, income. Uh, I don't know that that necessarily would have a long lasting effect on the company. Uh, generally, I would think that it would be more along the lines of more having to do with the buying and selling of the shares right before something. Uh, an ex-dividend date is obviously a bigger, a bigger event in a company's performance as well as it's just overall market presence. And I would, I guess I would think that it just really wouldn't make much difference. What are your thoughts? I mean, over the long run, it, it doesn't, but it is true that you see this pretty often. So if you think about like how what happens when a company pays a dividend, they're basically... You have a company that's trading in the stock market, right? It has a certain amount of cash. It has a certain amount of equity. And then when they pay that dividend off, then they lose that amount of cash and they lose that amount of equity. And so sometimes the the price will dip to kind of reflect that. And so um, that's why you'll see weird things around the ex-dividend date. I've also seen people claim that they've tried to trade short-term around that. And other people have said they've tried and they've failed. I've looked at it just kind of like for fun but never saw anything that that was exactly definitive. So over, it it would be as much of a factor as anything else in the sense that like, you know, are you going to buy on Mondays and sell on Fridays? Or there's just a lot of different movements throughout any stock, throughout any given time period. And so... What's going on between the the ex dividend date and the share price? Yes, there's going to be movement. Yes, there's going to be people who are taking advantage of that movement. But with so many people trying to take advantage of that, you know, between hedge funds or algorithms or even you know market makers like the brokers who are trying to make money with 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 no commissions, right? Between all of that. Um, it's it's very hard to say how somebody could profit off of the effect of the sh- the stock price moving from the ex dividend date, and then when when you zoom that out and, and try to answer Sean's picture about how does that affect over the long term? Yeah, like if you look at it fundamentally, yes, you are taking cash out of the business, so that does take that does take some value out of the business, but as an owner. You know, you're a part owner. You're entitled to to part of those profits through a dividend, and so you're you're really exchanging that value from the business to yourself. And so, would the company have stayed more valuable if it didn't pay the dividend? Yes, probably. You know, would that have been reflected in the share price? 
maybe you know the market's a little too crazy to say that def- definitively but at the end of the day over the over a very long time period does that make it so that your investment is doing a lot worse than if they didn't pay you the dividend and i would say probably not so you know yeah the the dividends over the long term do affect the, the underlying business but is that good for the investor i also say yes uh, and I would agree with that. And I think thinking through that a little bit farther, uh, while you were talking, think about a company like Johnson and Johnson, for example, a dividend aristocrat that's been paying a dividend for over 25 years. If they, if they permanently lost a value every single time they paid a dividend, nobody would ever invest in the company. So there may be a short term hit to, to the value of the company, but I think over the long term, I don't think it really affects it as much. Uh, I guess thinking along those lines as well, really the, the best way to, to take advantage of some of those dips is to find out when Dave's going to buy a stock because it's guaranteed to take a short term dip as soon as I buy it. So, uh, if you, if you want to go that route, that would work for you too. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to nerd wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Yeah, maybe I'll have to put you on my speed dial. (laughs) 
<laughs> see what I could do to help everybody out. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on to the next question. So I have a uh, hello, Mr. Sather. I have been currently binging your podcast while working and trying to catch up. I have also read both your books and have found both extremely informative, especially the VTI calculation. I do have two questions for you. I was hoping you would be able to answer them. The first is pretty straightforward, and that is how should I figure the intrinsic value of a company? I've been trying to figure out which method to use, and all seem to have upsides and downsides. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, that's a million dollar question. Um, there's a ton of different things that you can do. As I've gotten more experience, I've realized there's a lot of different tools you can use to try to estimate intrinsic value. And there's no one answer for everything. And, you know, Warren Buffett will tell you that more than anybody else will. And so what you have to do is you have to take the tools that you have and try to collect a lot of them, try to understand a lot of them and apply them as best you can for a company. And you have to consider more than just intrinsic value on its own. You have to consider how much am I paying for this intrinsic value? Am I getting a margin of safety for that? Am I paying a fair price for this intrinsic value? Am I overpaying for this intrinsic value? Those are huge factors. And that's maybe even a whole nother discussion. But it is important when you're thinking about intrinsic value because you know there's no there, there's nothing that's definite, concrete that says this is the intrinsic value of something. They say the quote is like the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and the value of something is is the price that somebody would pay to buy and the price that somebody else would uh, sell at, right? But when you're talking about the stock market, that changes every second that the market's open. So, you know, that that doesn't really sound like a great definition of intrinsic value. So, you know, you, you want to look at where it's trading at, what's what's the relation to how you're estimating that. And then you want to look at things like what makes the business valuable and uh, what what does the business own that makes it valuable. So, you know, you can find a lot of that in the financials a lot of times. Um, how much cash do they have? How much um, property plan equipment do they have? What's their earnings power? And then there's some intangible things that can go into that too. So a, a business could own something like a brand that generates a lot of earnings or generates a lot of free cash flow. And that contributes to intrinsic value. And then you also want to think about there's intrinsic value in the sense that a company could have opportunities to grow and some businesses might have that more than others. And so does that make their intrinsic value greater than one with less of a growth potential? And so it's it's all relative and it all really depends on the situation. Um, but those are some of the things that you need to think about when you're trying to look at intrinsic value. Those are all fantastic ideas and great points to consider. Uh, I agree with all the things that Andrew was saying. Those are all very important points to to think about and relate to as you're working through this. I think the the biggest thing that I think about when I think about intrinsic value is so many people get caught up on figuring out the exact number. For example, if you're trying to value a company like Apple, uh, 
you will, some people will spend a lot of time trying to find the exact number that they think it's worth right now. And they get so focused on the actual number that they forget about the reason why they're doing that. And the reason why they're doing that is they're trying to evaluate whether it's a good investment for them at that time or not. And it's really more important to try to find an approximate value than the exact value. And Buffett talks about this a lot. He would rather be approximately wrong than precisely right or wait a minute (laughs) sorry sorry about that Uh, he would be he would rather be approximately correct than precisely wrong and so what he means by that is don't get so focused on the method of figuring out intrinsic value rather assessing the whole company as a whole Using the numbers to analyze the company is obviously a great way to start, and those are very important things to consider. And there's lots of different tools that you can use to calculate intrinsic value, whether you want to go down the rabbit hole of figuring out the different models that you can use, i.e. a discounted cash flow, a dividend discount model, uh, excess return models. You, you can go on and on. There are, there are a million of them. You can also look at relative value, which is where you use things uh, to compare different companies to the company you're trying to value. So you can use the PE ratio and use that to compare it to other ones. And then based on the comparisons, you can find out whether you think your company is over or undervalued. And again, it's not necessarily focusing on how much it's over or undervalued, rather more the quality of the undervaluation and the margin of safety and how logical you think that is. And it, it all comes back to how well do you understand the business and how well do you understand the prospects of the business as well as the numbers that are involved in all those different models, as well as the ideas of how those companies function. And when you're trying to calculate the intrinsic value, there are lots of tools online that you can find uh, to use. One that I really like is uh, a discounted cash flow model that Guru Focus has. Uh, They also have a reverse DCF that you can use. And those are simply tools that you can use. You can plug in a few numbers and it'll do all the calculations for you. And it's not super precise, but that's kind of the point. It's just trying to get you in the ballpark to see if this company is under or overvalued. And never, ever, 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 ever buy a company just because you see that it's cheaper than what you think it should be, because it could be a value trap. There could be a a possibility that there's a reason why it's so cheap, because it's a pile of a pile of dog doo doo. Uh, <laughs> and there's a reason why it's so cheap, but it could also be because the market is ignoring that particular sector. So there's a lot of different things that you can consider when you're thinking about intrinsic value. But uh, I would try to find several different tools that you are comfortable with and learn those in inside and out and use those and think about all the things that Andrew was talking about because all those, all those ideas all interplay with each other. It's not just simply taking a spreadsheet and plug it in some numbers and off you go. Uh, There's a little more thinking involved in it, but it doesn't, it it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, I remember a quote that uh, Albert Einstein uh, said, he said, make everything as complicated as it needs to be. In other words, make everything as simple as it needs to be. And that is as simple as you need it to be. So I thought that was kind of fascinating. So anyway, that's my thought. 
Yeah, I like it. I think, you know, people who want to learn more about DCF, those are both the DCF and the reverse DCF. Those are good ways of getting a grasp on intrinsic value. And it's something that um, a a lot of traditional finance courses will teach. And Dave's wrote, two great posts about those. Um, so if you just go on the the website, you search DCF, Dave's great posts will pop up and that gives you a real good in-depth lesson that you can apply some of those things. A lot of different great tools and, and a lot a lot of things you can apply to, to find great stocks. At the end of the day, it'll, it'll come to a balance between the science and the art of valuation and there's going to be numbers involved. There's going to be you know, some common sense things too. And, and you need to focus on both and not rely on one or the other. So let's, let's finish this off with his second question. He says, um, since this is about current economic issues, since business has slowed down drastically, that means that revenue will be going down and businesses will be having to dip into their reserves or take out loans to cover operating costs. He says, so what I've been doing is looking at the current cash on hand and current liabilities and creating a ratio between the two. My thought being that the greater this ratio, the less money the company will have to leverage. This will have two advantages. The first is that the company will be less likely to become over leveraged in the current environment. The second advantage I see when the, when the economy recovers, those with less liabilities will be able to recover faster because they will be able to put a large portion of their revenue into growth and dividends instead of paying off loans. He says, or am I being too cute about this and overthinking it? Have an excellent day, Ben. Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that's a, it's a interesting viewpoint. I had uh, not thought of creating my own ratio <laughs> per se, but uh, it's a, it's a good idea. And it's a long the the same lines as thinking about a quick ratio or a current ratio and those are in essence what ben is trying to was creating and looking at the difference between the current liabilities and the current assets that a company has and for those of you who are not familiar with what i'm talking about current assets and current liabilities are in essence things that you own and things that you owe that are due within a year. So current assets are going to be things like the cash on hand that Ben mentioned. They're also going to be things like accounts receivable or accounts payable, uh, inventories, other assets. There's lots of different things that could fall under their marketable securities. They're, depending on the companies, there are, there are going to be different line items that will line up with that. In essence, on the balance sheet, there's going to be a section that's called current assets, and then there'll be asset total assets, and then there'll be current liabilities, and then long-term liabilities. So when you break those down and look at those, the current assets and the current liabilities, those are liquid as much as they can be. And generally, as you work down the balance sheet, the more the, the top items are going to be the more liquid ones. And as you move down the assets, they'll be less liquid as you go down the line. So the current asset and the, or I'm sorry, the quick ratio and the current ratio were created to help show that 
indicate that kind of liquidity that Ben is looking for. And as we have gone through the the crisis now since March, uh, there have definitely been companies that have stretched <laughs> their current ratios and their quick ratios because they haven't been able to generate cash. Now, I haven't looked at a company like, let's say, AMC, for example, that had their business basically shuttered for three or four months. It would be interesting to look and see how much their ratios changed from before COVID hitting to today. I bet you would probably see a big change in those because they had to use a lot of money to try to stay afloat during this time. But I like his idea and I think it's a, uh, I think it's a great idea. And he's not necessarily, I don't think you're being too cute, but I think there's already been uh, a ratio created for that that can help you fairly quickly figure out the liquidity of the company. Yeah, I agree. I like, I like where the thought is. I would just caution that you you just have to put it in context. So I'll, I'll give two examples. One of them was I have, a stock that I recommended in the e-letter and then I added to it after after the pandemic. So what I saw with this business was not only was it not negatively impacted, but it was positively impacted for a variety of reasons. And so I felt very good about the tailwinds that were pushing this business forward. I felt very good about how the business had grown up to now, and now they had these things that would make things even better. And then what I liked about them a lot was compared to their competitors, they had a lot more cash flow available in the future. So companies will have to disclose what kind of liabilities they have in the future. Um, you'll see that on the balance sheet, there's also an obligations in the in the footnotes. And so you can see other things like purchase, uh, purchase obligations for CapEx and, and things of that nature. So I was looking at them versus somebody else. And I saw, so I saw a company that was still pretty reasonably valued. They had a lot of real assets. They had a lot of real growth. And they had a lot of things going for them, even through the pandemic. And then you add the cherry on top where a lot of their future cash flows are just going to be able to reinvest that or, like Ben said, pay that off in a dividend. So that made me really excited about it and and kind of gave me the edge over another one of their competitors um, in an industry where brand name might have a little bit to do with it, um, but a lot a lot more of it comes down to size, scale, resources, marketing, things like that. And so you know you're looking for an edge between competitors. This could be a big one in this particular situation. Now, if we take that, if you take that and try to apply it to a different industry, and let's say, I don't know, let's say you're talking about like shoe companies, right? And so if you have a company that's competing with Nike, as an example, where everybody's buying Nike, no matter, you know, whether you're a runner, a basketball player, a soccer player. Everybody's buying Nike, and then you have. Uh, I don't want to like throw a brand name under the bus, but you know you have this, this, um, this small little, little um, shoe. Com- let, let's say, uh, like Reeboks. I think Reeboks used to be a lot more popular than they are now. 
So if Rebox was in a situation where they didn't have much in the way of liabilities and loans, just because they they were that way against Nike doesn't mean I would want to buy Rebox over Nike. Because if you go to 10 people around and give them a pair of Reeboks or a pair of Nike, they're going to pick Nike, right? So in that situation, using a ratio like this wouldn't be that helpful, particularly if you're just taking it at its at its face and, and not trying to apply it amid other factors. So I think that's that's something it can be helpful, it can be useful, maybe another tool, kind of like what we were talking about before. You have a lot of different tools that you use to figure out different parts of these businesses. But it's not something that is like an automatic guarantee that these businesses will do better just because of it. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank Joe, Sean, and Ben for taking the time to write us those great questions. We appreciate it very much. And we hope you guys got some answers that satisfied your questions. And if you guys have anything else you guys would like to know, please don't hesitate to send us some questions. We love doing this for you guys. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. and We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.